0: launch and optimize web pages fast that means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge learn why teams like dropbox ideo and orange theory all trust webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com want to drive greater success in social commerce with deloitte's latest creator economy research you can after surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands Our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you?
1: I think I would say Adidas, to be honest. Going back to the soccer pitch, you know, it was always, it was the Adidas Copas. You know, that's how I learned Spanish was... Middle school soccer, and my coaches didn't even speak English. So I was like, man, I gotta I gotta figure out what they're saying, otherwise I, like, I don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of Adidas Copas with the laces, you know, the tongue pulled out and the laces tied down over so you get the little extra bounce on the toe. That yeah. was that was kinda the thing and you had the right shoes, you know, look good, play good. Hi,
0: I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, we have a chief creative officer on our show and a very special one for reasons that will be clear as this show unfolds. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Andre Gray, the chief creative officer at Annex 88, which is part of the French-based Havas Group, one of the world's largest communications companies. Annex 88 is an agency with a strong belief that brands thrive only when they bring culturally representative creative ideas to the market. Andre has a resume befitting a top creative leader in a top agency. He earned his bachelor's in black studies at Amherst and then two master's degrees, one at the American University of Paris and one at the Academy of Art University. He has worked at creative agencies Digitas LBI, The Gray Group, and TBWA Naboko. And he has worked on clients ranging from Adidas to Uber to Gatorade. This is my conversation with a guy who has a lot to say about how CMOs can be even better leaders. Here's Andre. Andre. Andre, welcome to the CMO Podcast. We met a few months ago in New York, and we were talking about what's on the minds of today's CMOs. And you and I got in a chat after that larger discussion, and we agreed to to have you on the show. So here we are. And I want to start with... What about that discussion we were having in that room in New York with a bunch of people about CMOs and what's on their mind? What stimulated your interest in that discussion to want to come on the show?
1: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, thank, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super oh, my um, pleasure. happy to be here and I, I'm i happy to be included in this conversation. You know, one of the things for me, there's kind of two, two driving forces that that made me super curious about being on the show. Uh, one. I I'm a real believer in the agency client relationship. You know, when I've worked on some of the biggest clients in the world, you know, this from the world of P and G, um, from the Adidas side, from Nissan, you know, those, those different large companies, there are things that when you only have one side, when you're only an agency or you're only in the brand side that you can't say, or you can't do. And the balance between the two is really where the, the magic comes from. I think you need to have, you know, a certain level of skepticism from the agency right y'all you know on, on the brand side you might spend nine months developing a product and you think it's the bee's knees and our first reaction is always going to be no that's terrible they might not tell you but we're going to think it's terrible we're going to walk our way back you're going to think <laughs> it's the best and yeah. you're going to walk your way back and we meet ourselves in the middle and i think if the podcast is designed to get the most from cmos then then people who are in the position like myself as, as ccos that's a partnership that has to be explored. I, I think the second part of it, um, which was kind of the, the question that I asked, uh, you know, when when you were you know, sharing all your insights is as these seats are changing, as the people are changing and there's more representation in, in, in the C-suite, um, not necessarily fast enough in, in my mm-hmm. personal opinion, but um, probably faster than it's been in history, the permissions of those people change and how is that impacting CMOs and what they're able to do and how they're able to seek mentorship specifically, because, you know, a lot of the examples that I get of mentorship, you know, are people with the greatest intentions, but not always cognizant of the gap in permissions that occurs between me and say a white male, you know, cisgender heterosexual uh, person, things like sit and wait in the room and just, you know, ask a lot of questions. Well, if I sit in those rooms and especially, you know, other historically excluded people sit in those rooms and just wait for the mic to come. Mm. The mic will just skip right over them and hey, great meeting everybody and we'll move on. So we have to interject sometimes when other people don't. We have to speak up when sometimes when other people don't, we have to not speak up when other people don't. And how do we help navigate that?
0: Well, we're going to get into that in a few minutes, but before we get into all that good stuff, Andre, I'd like you to start a little bit with your origin story, you know, which I think traces back to Guyana, so I'd like you to kind of talk about that and wh- what led you to this field of advertising ultimately.
1: So I'm born in New York. Uh, my dad is, uh, is, is Guyanese, you know, he was uh, 18 years old, $32 in his pocket, never seen snow before. So, you know, always big shouts to him. Um, my My mom is Jewish. So that was, that was also, you know, another kind of cultural expression that really impacted in, in and shaped who I am. And, you know, I grew up in San Francisco. My parents moved from New York. They moved me to San Francisco. They wanted me to, to grow up in an environment that I think gave me a chance to mm-hmm. figure out who I was before it asked me who I was. Um, and uh, I grew up going to French school in San Francisco, which I think being in a bicultural environment had a supreme impact on me. Mm-hmm. It, it always made me Probably, at the same time, curious and also frustrating, <laughs> like I would learn math in in the American way and math in the French way. And so every time someone tells me to do something, I'm like, "Well, that's one way to do it. you know what's the, what's another way to do it?" Um, which I think feeds and the desire to do things differently and to do things new. Um, from there, I went to Amherst College. I was a black studies major. Um I started to kind of set my eyes on on advertising. I was originally, set out to be a doctor. I wanted to be a, a, a surgeon for, for sports teams. You know, sports has always been kind of mm-hmm. a passion of mine. And I just had this, this desire to have an impact on the world more quickly. You know, I, I felt like I couldn't wait till I was 35 to start having an impact and start doing things. And so I looked at kind of my other skills and, and, and passions. And I believe in advertising. I believe in the platform.
0: What was it in college that got you moving in that direction from kind of a med school student to kind of because I'm not sure I even under I don't know if I even thought about advertising when I was in college you know right. it wasn't even I, something that was in my on my radar
1: it's a, it's a good question you know i i'd love to tell you some sort of elaborate legacy story mm-hmm. but that wasn't really it i think i was just looking at the things in the world and the things i was reading and and the things that i was seeing and there was a lot of talk around the power of persuasiveness and that kind of led me down the path to advertising. I think I even didn't even know that it was advertising at the time. I just knew let me let me do something that involves studying people because I found people to be fascinating. I say this all the time, but like I'm an academic first, you know like I love research and trying to really map out theories you know the old old white men whose last names start with a B, all those Frenchmen the Bourges and the Baudrillards, the way in which people create meaning for themselves. Like those are the things that I always gravitated towards. I think, especially, you know, as a, as a black man growing up in San Francisco and in a very French environment, you know, there was a lot of things that in retrospect made more sense to me, but at the time it was just kind of like, that doesn't line up. So I think I was on a path of trying to figure out who I was. And that led me to being passionate about kind of being almost a an anthropologist or kind of a social observer in that way. So how
0: were your parents during that time? Are they supportive of you changing direction from med school to advertising?
1: I think when I started going to school in Marin, there was probably like a three month period where my parents tried to have some sort of say (laughs) in what was going on. You know what I mean? I mean, I think, you know, my parents also split up at the time. We, We ended up in a very difficult financial situation. And so, there wasn't a lot of space, I think, for oversight. And so by the time I got to college, I was already I was already an adult, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was I was, you know, raising my brother, my sister, I was making a lot of adult decisions. And so it was more of like, hey, this is what's happening type of thing. than it was like a, um, you know, we have a huge say. I think that being said, you know, there is something to 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 be said about the patterns of you know, first generation migrants, uh, first time college graduates. You know, I was the first college graduate of my family. I think, as long as I graduated, I had done my duty. I think to to my brother and my sister to set them on a path and set an example that that they had to follow.
0: Getting ready for this interview, Andre. I watched the three part documentary, Black Madison Avenue. Seven is not enough. It's quite a provocative title and quite an unbelievable title, actually, in twenty twenty two. So. I'd like you were in that documentary, all three parts. You were one of the seven. And I found that an amazing, my wife actually was eavesdropping as I was listening to it, watching it. And we were both really captivated by the conversation. The, all of those people I'd want to be with. Mm-hmm. I want to be on their mm-hmm. team. I want to go out to dinner with them. And I just mm-hmm. felt like I was listening to seven pretty remarkable people. Who had achieved a senior level in an industry which has not been friendly to black Mm. people, achieving senior levels on the ad side. So I'd like you to talk a bit about that documentary. What was the catalyst? What was the original idea, and then what's happened since? That was about eight months ago.
1: It was it was an amazing moment. Walt Walt Gear, great dude, uh, and and a real you know force for change. I think in this industry, everyone's got their own role and style and and, and he uses his to, to his greatest ability. so I always be thankful for him for that. But he, you know, he called me and said, Hey, you know, we got to do something. Let's, let's get something together. And, uh, we had a little back and forth and I'm like, Hey, I know what to call it. Black Madison Avenue seven is not enough. We got to point directly at that kind of old guard. We're in New York, you know, that's where all the, the, the seven of us are, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. I know, Sherm is down in Atlanta and, and uh, Perry was, was in, uh, was in, was in LA, but I mean, he was still working for, for mm-hmm. McCann in New York, you know, at the time. And, and so we kind of came together around that idea. And the original concept is just like, you could you shouldn't be able to fit all of us in one room. Let's say we're all in a car and the car blows up and you lose all of the black ECDs that exist in advertising in the holding companies in the U.S. I think the The number is important too. We were we were kind of focused on the five holding companies just because of their outsized impact and they probably have the biggest responsibility for change. The goal was to to get us in there and a lot of us hadn't even met before. You know, I I knew Walt um, and we had spoken a few times, but this is this is height of the pandemic, you know. We Mm -hmm. we all were meeting for the first time. And so I think the conversation being felt the way that you're talking about, not only eight months later, but also feeling so fluid. It just shows yeah. how systematic all of this is. Cause we all just related as if we were friends that knew each other since we were kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're all amazing. Perry, Perry is full of wisdom. Dave's a great storyteller. The stories he told in the documentary, by the way, we'll have the link to the documentary in the show notes and I'd highly recommend amazing. everyone listen to it. It's um, it's pretty amazing. You said in that documentary that this is the greatest time to be in advertising. So I'd like you to reflect on that a bit.
1: I think this is the time with the most possibilities. You know, um, it's a it's a convalescence of a few things. One, Transformers Three was definitely an ad for GMC. So if the sky, you know, used to be the Super Bowl, I think the sky now is a full length film. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously costs a lot of money, hard to hard to sell in, but it's possible. And, and I think the formats of what actually influences people in the purchase life cycle, um, the, the kind of, the, the box is broken on that. You could pretty much do anything. And I think the conversation is coming to a maturity where we realize, I don't know if my traditional marketing funnel, my hero hub hygiene model, I don't know if that's what's going to be the most impactful, um, and the most effective per se. I think also, Um, we're in a moment where the rum is soaked into the rum cake, so to speak of, of data. I think like in the, in the last 20 years, you know, there was a lot of people who didn't really have a good gut sense of what was going to motivate people and kind of, um, push them. And then they, they found this tool that they could weaponize called data and be like, well, the data says, And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. Like I've run research seminars and I've run controlled studies. Like the data is a tool. It just proves out your hypothesis. It's like you went to third grade and you did your science experiment and you just like put on the board like what you thought was going to happen and you just never ran the science. But I think people are coming to realize, hey, this is a tool. This is not Mm -hmm. a source of truth. And so once you you kind of loosen that grip a bit. I think that the sky's the limit, but there's a lot of pressure on us, I think as creatives and people who aid in the creative process to, to be disciplined because we're also in a time where most of the examples out there are pretty bad. Like I, I think advertising is getting worse a bit. And so I find it difficult, especially talking to younger people. I'm like, hey, I want you to go make something great, but like don't take many examples from what you see day to day because if you just judge off of like the ads you see in the subway that's, that's not that's not really good enough for, for what we're trying to do today you know
0: we've all been there you spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped on top of that 81 percent of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge so what do you do well you switch to webflow let me tell you why Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Before we leave the documentary, I'd like you to talk about cmo's role in seven is not enough Mm. and you talk this came up in the documentary but if a client is clear that they want people on their business who represent the consumers they are serving the consumers they are seeking to delight change will happen so and i know a lot of cmos you do too you know most of them their intent is good but what what's going on why is not it happening faster this is This is not good for anyone.
1: Yeah. No, I I appreciate you saying that. It's not good for anyone. You know, I I would say CMOs are the ones who hold the keys. You know, at the end of the day, we're still in a client service industry as much as we want to get to some sort of collaborative place. I think that's when the relationship works the best. But um, if CMOs demand it, it will happen. You know, I think the issue with systemic change is it's like you're running Grand Central Station and you're trying to find the best time to change the tracks of the trains. Like there is no good time for it. It's never going to be convenient. It's always going to be something that slows you down. I've had the luxury, I would say, of being a person who always believed in thinking first, even if it takes me 29 days to think of the answer on the 30th, because I think you can actually shorten the life cycle of whatever you're trying to do if you're thinking is super quality and planned out in the beginning. But every day you go, there's more people get nervous <laughs> and be like, why are you thinking? Why are you not doing? I think the responsibility lies with CMOs. They have to be more exacting. And to be completely frank, they did it already. When there was you know, the Me Too movement and that's something that, you know, representation from a gender perspective absolutely needs to be the highest priority. But there was there was effective change over the course of a five year period. And then a lot of people came up in 2020 and started being like, Oh, well, I don't even know what we're gonna do for y'all black people. And it's like, Well, hold on. You just ran a playbook. We just let's just run the playbook for yeah. the next group of people and, and the next and the next, right? The the point for me is never solely about black people. It's we're all operating against the same triangle that puts a white, you know, heterosexual, cisgender, male at the top. And until we create some sort of parity, we'll continue to have the same answers in the same problem.
0: You were an ECD for three, you know, well-respected agencies. You're now a chief creative officer for Annex 88. Why did you jump to this company at this time? What was it about this opportunity that was compelling for you?
1: You know, Annex 88 is, a, is a, an agency that's at the right size and at the right moment, you know, I'm always going to be constantly picking things up and trying to shake them around and find something new and I think to be in that space, you have to be at a certain size you know um and so that's like the perfect place that I think annex eighty eight sits right as a thirty something person agency that's part of Havas, we have the scale on the back end, but we also have the autonomy to be able to do things a bit differently and I think the industry needs it, right? Until we start changing our financial modeling, you know, there's not going to be more AORs. There's not going to be, you know, more hours in the day. So the whole way that that even agencies bill is all based on how many hours can Mm -hmm. I I, build a client? Like if I'm judged off hours, we've seen the memes, right? Of people installing carpets or whatever they're doing. If you're paid by the hour, you might go take a walk (laughs) for an hour. (laughs) If I'm paid by the output... Mm-hmm. I should get it done as quickly as possible and get to the next thing. And I'm not saying it's as simple as changing it that way. But I think if there's not people out there exploring new ways of doing it all the way soup to nuts from the financial modeling to the process to the outputs, then I think we're going to have a tricky time as an industry. And so um, I thought NX was a place that was ripe and, and open for the conversation to try something new. We,
0: we need a lot of work on innovation and, and compensation based on output. I mean, years ago we did a lot of work on that at P and G, and got rid of the hours model and incented our partners on with the same thing we were incented on: revenue growth, share growth. Yeah, and I think that's still the best model. I know it's a little bit more complicated, but it's it's by far a, a better way to to be in all this together, right?
1: One hundred percent. You know, and 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 I think that's completely right. You know. If you if you talk even like one of my, you know, my executive managing director, Elena Grassman, she was at Gray at the time you were over at P&G, mm-hmm. and she talked still about that model and how, how effective it was and how much of a motivator it was. I was talking with um, Everett Taylor, who's the CEO uh, of Kickstarter, you know, and he was griping over the fact that CMOs aren't considered to be as business-minded as CEOs, and they're seldom given the opportunity to make that jump. And I think equally, creative people and people with creative in their title, it's like presumed that I don't care about business. But I can't, I can't go make the work if the business is not right. Like if, right. if the financial modeling is not right, I don't have the people to put them in the environment to have the time that it takes to come up with something new, right? Like the creative process is like cooking a 12-hour whole hog. It takes 12 hours regardless, you know? So just because you want it shorter in a short amount of time or because, you know, the account team has agreed they're going to give it in two days, like I think they fail to realize you can go taste that hog eight hours in. It's going to be disgusting. It's not cooked. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That, that's gross. You, we need our 12 hours. And so we need to have the finances give us that space. You know,
0: you also need to understand the business so that you understand the problem you're trying to solve. 100%. And you know, if that's not shared with you, then I don't know how you're expected to make breakthrough work if you don't understand the business problem and you know i still see in relationships and briefs that isn't clear Hmm. so hey let's talk about culture a bit and not culture in the sense of company culture uh, Hmm. but culture at large culture in society i have a very basic question for you and it's at the root of i think why annex 88 was founded is it important? And I think I know what you're going to say here, but it's more about why and how. Is it important that every brand understand its place in culture?
1: Yes, it's infinitely important. You know, I think it comes back to. You know, I wrote a I wrote a book called Digital Anthropomorphism, and the point of the book is that psychologically brands are understood as people. This is not like conjecture or my opinion. This is like. I literally look at a cloud and I think it's a face or I see a stack of garbage and I assume it's a person around the corner. That's like the anthropomorphic process. It applies to anything that is intangible, right? I can grab a cup. This is a cup. I know what it is, but a brand I can never grab. The company is is a real entity, right? But the brand is not. Once you realize that Brands are understood as people and in human terms, but they're intangible. Then how do they relate to other people is a person to person relationship in a social society process, which means you have to understand what your permissions are and who is around you, what you're associated with. Right. Like you can go back to things like Susan Fournier, you know, in the mid 90s, she Mm -hmm. did a super in-depth study. Uh, of brands. And this woman was like, Hey, my friends don't wake up with me to go running in the morning, my Reeboks or my workout partner. She literally understands them like a trainer. It's not that she thinks they're a trainer. It's just the way that she processes that information emotionally, you know, psychologically, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so every brand, not only to, to what you're saying has to understand their role in culture, but then they have to understand their permissions. If Nike wants to take a stance on something, They have more permissions in certain conversations than other people, whether it's a sports conversation, whether it's LGBTQIA plus conversation or what have you, because of the things that they've done in the past, because of the assumptions that people have about them and the type of person they are perceived to be. Now, if Exxon wants to go make a stance on something, they have to know their permissions are different. And that's actually the, the plus up, I would say, to what you're saying It's understand your place in culture and understand your permissions before you walk in. If you're a seven foot person and you're going to go walk into a house in the middle of Amsterdam, you should know that you got a duck because you're going to hit your head. It's not to say it's impossible, but you got to know before you get in. Otherwise, you're going to have a you're going to knock yourself
0: out. If I'm a client, I come to you and I say, I need some help. I think my brand is, you know, no one cares about it. It, no no one, it's, it's blah, it's blasé. It doesn't have a point of view. It doesn't have a set of beliefs or values. No one kind of is aware of it, cares about it. We're not growing. Help. Kind of where do you start?
1: I always start with people, right? Every brand and every product has a core people, right? I think as marketers, like the shrewd play is to go for that juicy middle bit. But, you know, I I had actually, you know, some, some people from a brand. Well, what about people at Walmart in Iowa? And it's like people at Walmart in Iowa don't make their own decisions per se. They're greatly influenced in like a devil wears Prada cerulean blue sweater like type of way by people that are likely in New York, right? They're likely in Tokyo and in Paris and in London and they're driving global culture and they're now in decentralized global communities. And so... For every brand, there's a core people that probably influences a larger group of people. There are the early adopters and innovators. And I think you have to figure out who they are. So I start there. And when and when you start there, I think the process is quite simple. Hey, these are we're trying to reach people who wear glasses, who, you know, spend 12 hours a day in front of a computer. Okay, fantastic. That's a good start where would they likely be? They're either at home or they're at an office, most likely. Some of them might be you know, in a hospital, but that's probably a smaller percentage than the ones who are going to either be working from home or working in an office. What are, what are the conditions of that day? What kind of things are they talking about? Let's go find coffee shops that are near offices because they're probably going there in the afternoon because they're trying to get a break and go for a walk. You can easily see how you can start to show up in places and then show up authentically. And then I think that the, the number one thing, which also comes back to the agency client relationship is you always have to realize that no one asks for advertising. You're always interrupting. So if I'm going to interrupt, it has to be an exchange, right? If I were to stop you on the street and I didn't offer you anything, you would be like, man, that dude just wasted my time. Why, why, why was he here? So you figure out the people, you figure out what conversations they're in and you figure out what you can bring to the potluck. And I think it's as simple as that. Um, it's complicated to hold everyone to it yeah. <laughs> and, and to figure it out. Yeah. But you try it and, and then you try it again.
0: That's a good segue into creativity, you know, because obviously you have to, you know, you have to understand your place in culture, I believe, and then understand what you're trying to do and then f- bring people in to help you creatively figure out how to do that. So you've worked, Andre, with some of the most creative organizations in the world and you worked with some of the most creative brands in the world. What is the magic in your view of top creative organizations?
1: I'll call it honesty, but, but really it's, a, it's being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? We're trying to figure out something about people, but people will surprise you every time. So no matter what the bet is, I can go in with full confidence into a conversation knowing that I believe this is the right choice, but I also know I can never know 100%. And as long as we all agree to that, that that's what we're doing and agree, this is the recipe we're going to follow. This is the dish we're going to serve. And we're going to hope people are dazzled in this restaurant and they want to give us a Michelin star. um, But it might be gross and it's possible. And even if that happens, that's okay. And, and, and we'll move on, but you have to be brave. And so that's, that's what I mean by honesty. Mm -hmm. So, how
0: do you approach building your creative organization?
1: Yeah, I think it's a lot about environment, you know, uh, you know, kind of circling back on the on the whole hog you know analogy. I think a lot of time's That's gonna make
0: it to the headline for the show I think
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 which is crazy because i don't even I don't even eat pork but um, but I love food, so I, I spend a lot of time watching things <laughs> about cooking um, but you have to create a, an environment. And, and it's actually creativity comes from two things. It comes from the pressure of lack of resources, right? In, in, in the world, right? Uh, why is the, the most robust flavor profiles? They come from Thailand. They come from, uh, West Africa. They come from, uh, South America because those are places where you have to take a, a small piece of meat and make it work for eight people for four days, right? You have a lack of resources that's pushing you into places to do things more creatively. And so creating a, a little bit of pressure, whether it's time pressure or, or, or otherwise, but also creating the emotional presets for people to feel like they can come up with new ideas. Right. And for me, it's about trying to create a space that's more similar to the other creative spaces that we know. When you walk into Disney World, you like feel like anything's possible. Right. There's a lot of brand equity in that, of course but you should feel that, right? When you walk into an art studio, you feel like anything is possible. That's the environment we need to create instead of trying to create what looks like a call center. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's my goal.
0: You've had some good bosses and bad bosses, I am sure, as you've made your way through your, your career. Who have you learned the most from about building a creative culture, building a creative team?
1: I think I've learned a lot from lots of different people. You know, there's a lot of influence that has been had by the people who are in Black Madison Avenue. Perry's mm-hmm. someone I garner a lot of a lot of truth and experience from. But I also know his context is different. So it's always a matter of learning something from someone and then translating it back to to the specific context we're in. I think, you know, if I were to point to a mentor I would I would point to Carell Dixon. I observed him for many years from afar just watching what he was able to do to transition from professional sports to kind of leading the team at Wyden, you know, there's always a quote that he said to me, which he was like, um, good account. People are like a snowplow. They have to create space Mm -hmm. for you to be able to play. Great metaphor. I've always been transient in lots of cultures and environments. And so I've made the truth for myself Mm -hmm. by pulling lots of things together. It's very much like the academic process, right? Like if you're going to have a point of view, it's not necessarily about finding another source or another article or another study that says that. You want to take five spotlights and point them towards the middle and what's the crossover between those things? That's where the answer is. And so I think that's been the the greatest influence on me is an amalgamation of the different people, good and bad, that have been around me.
0: So let's start with the big question. And we talked about this a lot a few months ago when we were together. How do you feel about the state of the relationship between... CCOs and CMOs right now?
1: Yeah. I think there are some examples, right? When you look at Anselmo Ramo and Fernando Machado and what Mm -hmm. they've done, you know, they they dominated this game for 10 years just off of being, you know, as far as I could tell, two guys who can speak honestly with each other and come to some sort of consensus and then activate their separate companies to work in conjunction. Alternatively, I think there's a lot of pushes in kind of the what I would call the recent CMO handbook to take a lot of things internally and try to find new ways to innovate that exist outside of agencies, which I understand the desire for that because there is the bulk of the process that could be more efficient. It could be cheaper, you know, if not done by a thing that's kind of built to suck up all your money, to be honest. Um, But that's also why I'm not at a huge agency Mm -hmm. with the goal to be able to be more flexible and not necessarily with any desires to grow, to be a thousand person agency. I think it's still a people business, you know? So it's a matter of figuring out how do we get more CMOs and CCOs into rooms where there's a preset of them being honest, right? There's not the, I'm going to be kind of honest, but I'm also going to kind of try to sell you or I'm going to be kind of honest, but I'm going to also try to trick you into giving me your business. And so I guess the question is, how do we foster more of those environments, knowing that CMOs are super busy, but I think they need more help than they've ever needed because the game is changing faster than it ever has.
0: How do you feel a talented CCO like yourself can best help a CMO?
1: Providing some perspective. And so I think the way that I would help is just being honest and saying, hey, out there, I don't know if they care about the same things you're you're, you're mm-hmm. talking about. They can, but how do we walk them across those steps? And that bridge might be a little longer than you think, and it might lead to somewhere slightly different than you think. But how do we talk about that? And let's go try some stuff.
0: Andre, I'd like you to talk about one of your best experiences or relationships with a senior marketing person on the client side. And what was it about that experience, that relationship?
1: Yeah, um, I will probably point to Damon Jones, you know, a guy, Mm -hmm. you know, guy, I know, you know, he's, he's on the, on the path to, to leaving a real mark on this industry. And, you know, I think it starts with making time. I know it could seem annoying and it could seem, you know, we have a lot of things to do and families and all of that, but he's a guy who makes time and, you know, we're able to connect and talk as humans before we talk in a transactional Mm -hmm. fashion. And I think that's the core of it,
0: how did you and Damon meet? What's the nature of the relationship? When did it start?
1: Yeah. Um that's a good question. We met I think we met at Tribeca X um mm-hmm. I th- almost two years ago now, um, at the launch of the 846 films. Um and, and we we kept we met yeah, no, actually, no. I know exactly where we met. We met on the rooftop right over here. <laughs> <laughs> Andre's during, pointing during... out his
0: window to a rooftop. Yes, yes, yes. Right over here. In and Tribeca. Damon Jones, um, for our listeners, if you don't know, is a senior level executive at Procter & Gamble and a wonderful, yes. wonderful person. And it makes a big difference on the Cincinnati stage and beyond that.
1: Definitely. Uh, Chief Communications Officer. Yep. But yeah, I'm, uh, we met on that rooftop and he was, you know, genuine in front of the jump and I think we wanted to genuinely help each other as people. And then also as business people, we, we get on the phone at least once a month, just check in. You can't do any of this stuff on your own. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm always curious about the chief part of the C-suite and like what the, uh, ethnographical, um, origins of that are. But if it is rooted in native American culture, right? Like you're there to lead a group of people. You're not there to be an eye guy and talk about yourself necessarily.
0: One of my guests on this show a couple months back said that his title is chief marketing officer, but it's 90% chief and 10% marketing. And that's the way it should be.
1: Yeah, definitely. You have to be inspiring, you know, and you have to also be willing to, to be led. Mm-hmm. I think both of those things yep. are super important.
0: Yep. So I'd like you to share from your, your seat as a chief creative officer and coming out of the discussion you had on Black Madison Avenue, which I think you get into so many interesting areas, what would you like to see the CMOs who are listening, the senior marketing people who are listening, what would you like to see them do more of and maybe do less of?
1: Um, Don't talk about things that you don't care about. You know, there's people in this industry who don't talk about helping Black people. And even some of them are black people. And so when they don't do it, I still wish they did, but at least they're not being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, I can respect. I'm not going to you know expect everyone to have the same sensibilities. I think what I would love for them to do more of is acknowledging the fact, yes, black buying power is a billion dollars. I think when you talk about it that way, I think you're greatly um, undervaluing The influence of black people, right? There is no Elvis Presley without black people. There is no basketball without black people. There is no music, whoever you like. And so it's not only about black people, but I would love for them to be more adamant about getting people into the process and driving the process that drive the things we like in the world. And if that matters to you, tell your agencies it matters and be honest and you have to be willing to fire them that's how important it has to be and and you can't just give someone a little winky dink side project you got to give them the biggest project and give them room to succeed and room to fail so that would be that was two things but that would be the two I things i would it. request
0: andre let's move into the creator brief to end this wonderful discussion the first question is what's the first brand you remember as a young boy Making an impact on you, mm. I
1: think. I think I would say Adidas. To be honest, it's mm. funny because as a, I, I started off playing football and then you know uh, soccer and then mm-hmm. playing playing basketball. And so a lot of my memories come from you know playing D two basketball, playing overseas. And you know, I, I admittedly, you know, I'm, I've, I've never not worn a Nike or a Jordan to to play basketball. So that's definitely my affiliation there. But You know, going back to the soccer pitch, it was always, it was the Adidas Copas. And I, and I grew up playing with, you know, a lot of El Salvadorians and Mexicans in San Francisco. You know, that's how I learned Spanish was middle school soccer. My Mm -hmm. coaches didn't even speak English. So I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta figure out what they're saying. (laughs) Otherwise, I don't know what's going on. But yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of Adidas Copas with the, with the laces, you know, the tongue pulled out and the laces tied down over. So you get the little extra bounce on the toe. That was, that was kind of the thing. And, you had the right shoes, you know, look good, play good. And, and and that was probably the first brand I remember.
0: Are you still a sports person? Do you play?
1: Yeah, I'm still a sports person as best I can. I think, you know, I get caught in the hours that it takes to to be successful mm-hmm. at this job and to take the responsibility, you know, like in, in my role, I have a lot of people's livelihoods, you know, in my hands. And so I feel very serious about making sure we get clients and making sure everyone can have, you know, a check and a good holiday. But I play as much as I can. You know, I had the privilege of going down to Nike headquarters playing, playing a couple of weeks ago. Super fun.
0: When I saw you in another interview, I asked about the creative people you admire. And I think you rattled off five of them. And I think three were athletes. Mm. So tell me about that. Why?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... There's so many examples of creativity out in the world that exist outside of this small bubble that is advertising. That's pretty. It's a pretty thankless bubble. And most people don't think too much about it. That's why I have such a hard time explaining to, like, people out there what an agency is. And so I draw inspiration from those people who are innovating in their own fields and spaces. And um, they're compelling. You know, Kobe is compelling. And, and you could see the work, you could see the innovation and you could see it translates how he was able to win an Emmy even, you know, yeah. after he won all those championships. For me, I think the two biggest influences or, or parallels to an agency are a sports team and, and a kitchen. We're watching a lot of videos of, of Anthony Bourdain and, and just mm-hmm. listening to how he thinks about, you know, the respect that exists in the kitchen and the way it works and everyone working together.
0: You said earlier in the show that you're an academic at heart in a way. And I've heard you say that if you were not a CCO, you'd be a professor. So <laughs> if you did take that leap or you took that leap years ago, what would you be teaching and what would you be researching?
1: Yeah. Well, well I am going to be a professor. I just came from St. John's University, so I'm going to be oh. teaching a class in their grad school. Uh, next semester. So
0: oh, good for you. What are you teaching? What's the class?
1: Uh, it's Advertising 100. So, hmm. you know, it's it's an intro class to advertising, you know, at the grad level, which I'm very excited about translating some of my real-world experience with some of the academic theory that's important for people to, to aim themselves at what this industry will look like a couple of years from now, which will be completely different from now. But I likely would be trying to help people not to be too philosophical, but you asked me a, a kind of philosophical yeah, question. But I did. But I think, you, I think you spend your life until you're about a teenager inadvertently picking up lots of rocks that other people hand you, right? So you got a backpack full of rocks. Your parents hand you some of those rocks. Your experiences hand you some of those rocks. And then you, you spend your time from your teenage years until hopefully your 20s or your 30s. I think trying to be honest about what rocks are there and put putting them down. And I think learning about the historical context, the anthropological context that exists around you, you know, the historical inequity, what is the balance of every given social situation between the haves and the have nots and those in power and those who are not and all those other things. Um, those are the tools that'll help you put those rocks down so you can figure out how to, do something on your own and hopefully not hand more rocks to the people that look up to you than were handed to you. Um, And so I would teach something in the crossover between um, brands, because I think they play a pivotal role in that today. And the belief in brands allows you to believe in yourself, Um, anthropology and something of a minority or black studies orientation.
0: Well, Professor, is there a book or a podcast? Or a song, or a musician, or an artist, you'd recommend to our audience?
1: Yeah, um, most top of mind. So, uh, a person I'm, you know, privileged to call a friend of mine, uh, Reginald Sylvester II. He's a, a fine artist and a painter. He just did a work um, that that a collection that is out, and also dropped a book. It explores his his background, um, you know, growing up in a military family and. He used, uh, you know, pop tents as his canvases. And and though the pieces are quite abstract, I think the emotionality of them is super tremendous. So that's that's what I would recommend. I think there's a process of healing through, through art and collective mm-hmm. healing. Um, so I would say, you know, look up Reginald Sylvester II.
0: Who has been the most inspiring person in your life?
1: The hard, the hard questions. Um, I would say for most of my life, I would say Kobe has been the most inspiring person in my life because I think he he really committed himself to something, and I think you seldom see people on a grand stage truly commit. I'm sure there's lots of people, not lots, but more examples of people that are really committed, but most of them don't have the platform and um, the opportunity to speak about it, you know. Um, and so he's a person that. You can't get around the hours, right? It's 10,000 hours to be an expert, no matter which way you do it. And he committed himself to those hours, and you saw the result of that. And for me, I find that to be greatly inspiring.
0: We're recording this two days before Thanksgiving, so I want to end with a question. Andre, what are you most grateful for these days?
1: I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my wife, you know, Um, and I'm I'm grateful— for my health, you know. I think that's of supreme importance. It all starts with none of this is possible without health. If you're unhealthy, you're going to have to solve that before you go solve something yep. else. And so I've had the privilege of being healthy enough to focus on what's possible in the world instead of having to focus on solving things within myself and in my and my body. And so I'm I'm greatly thankful for that.
0: Health is everything. I'm grateful for my health every day. I try to work on it every day. And Andre, I'm grateful for this conversation. So, I would like to end it by saying we should get together with Damon and have a drink in Cincinnati or New York. He has a pretty good bar here in Cincinnati if you haven't been to it yet. So, I think that would be a nice next step out of this discussion.
1: 100%, you know, and I, and I'm thankful for you, you know, for creating this platform. I think it's super important and the, the podcast in and of itself does a step to try and let all those CMOs who I'm sure feel a lot like they're on an island and they're isolated they in their organizations and let them know there's a network there. And, and I'm curious if, if we might also collaborate on trying to bring some of those people together just for the simple uh, point of letting them know they're not on their own. And they can they could probably feel some sort of the connectedness that, that we still feel, you know, from Black Madison Avenue. You know, we're in a text group. We text every day. Um, so there's probably some IRL things that we could do to, to help them.
0: No, I love that, Andre. And that's a great insight. I, I hear from so many of my guests who tell me that this show gives them, uh, a sense of calmness, confidence, inspiration, uplifting changes, their standards. And to me, that's the, uh, that's the ultimate reward, right? If I can help someone, you know, li- lift themselves up feel like they can do something that they didn't think they could do before inspire them to try something a different way that's my purpose
1: 100 percent.
0: thank you that was my conversation with andre gray three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life The first one, and I love this, Andre said, this is the best time in history to be in the advertising industry. There's a lot of headlines that say that's not true. He believes, and I do too, that it is true because there are so many opportunities. And with those opportunities come great responsibilities to deliver on them. Second takeaway, people, people, people. This is a people business. If you're interested in human behavior, human motivations, what makes people tick, This is the business for you. Andre spends a lot of time on studying people, talking with people. When I asked him about the chief driver of a strong relationship between a CCO and a CMO, it's about understanding each other, honesty, and talking frequently. Third takeaway, we talked a lot about brands and their role in society and understanding their role in society and the permissions they have to do things in the social fabric in which we all